So he just hangs there for a minute. We'll go and see if we can get another one or another two and then we'll butcher them. Lindsay isn't used to having people along with him at work. He says it makes him nervous, which affects his aim. Yeah, I sent 183 last week. Okay. But that was over a, a bit longer pick turnaround than usual, as extra day or two. Yeah, look, it just, it, when the weather's like this, you've just got to go when you can go, you know? I mean, usually you get quite a lot of freedom in this job to choose when you want to go to work and when you don't. Lindsay is a kangaroo shooter who hunts in the snowy mountains in New South Wales, not far from the Victorian border. Generally, I try, if I'm having a good run and it's winter, I try and put 130 to 40 in three nights if I can. But, you know, that always doesn't always work out. Obviously, wind and weather's a big factor in those sorts of things. Most full-time shooters shoot four nights a week. Uh, I try and cut mine down to three because that works best for my family. But that means I generally have to stay out a bit longer than what the, some of the other guys do. It's about nine at night when I meet Lindsay. It's cold with a heavy breeze. There's just been a couple of weeks of rain, so everything is saturated. We're in hilly country covered with sharp rocks and big tussocks of grass. It's rough going in the four-wheel drive. So that one was a female? No, that's a buck. Okay. Yeah, that was a buck. Yeah. If it was a female, I would have had to check the pouch as soon as you shoot it. Just make sure that there's no offspring. That's one of the most uh, controversial parts, of, isn't it? It absolutely is, yeah. And look, I can understand that, but we've got rules that we follow. A few nights a week, Lindsay's out in his specially modified Land Cruiser, spotlighting roos to sell mainly for us to eat, but also to the pet food trade. He's an electrician and longtime farmer, but got into roo shooting to be able to spend more time with his young family. He says convincing his partner that this was a good idea was a tough sell. To be honest, I'm not actually a recreational shooter at all. I don't go out shooting for fun. And look, to be honest, I'd probably been out spotlighting two or three times since I was 18 before I started this. It was purely a, a decision that I made on the, the amount of what I thought I could get. And we, we had property that had plenty of roos at that time. It was just trying to get you know, some work back closer to home during that, those drought times as well. Lindsay doesn't believe kangaroos are a pest, but they do need to be managed, he says. Well, they're our native animal. They can be a pest when they're in plague proportions. As a farmer, I wouldn't even want them eradicated, but their numbers need to be controlled because they have blown out of proportion. And I think any general person I would have thought would be happy to see some kangaroos jumping around but just not in the numbers that are causing a problem for them or for the stock. Hi I'm Tom Melville and welcome to Voice of Real Australia. Each episode we bring you people, places and perspectives from beyond the big cities. Kangaroos are everywhere, literally and symbolically. They're on our coat of arms and are a symbol of Australia used to market this country all over the world. They're our national animal. They're unique to this country, 
but some people argue that they're uniquely mismanaged. Slaughtered on farms with little oversight or regard to animal welfare, hit by cars or exploding in numbers during wet years, followed by millions dying of starvation in the dry years. One minute they're being culled, the next minute protected. It's a shameful situation, which appears to be getting worse. There are people, though, who reckon that we should be eating them, and that that would help the kangaroo in the long run. The commercial kangaroo industry that Lindsay works for does exist, but even that is hugely controversial and a fraction of the size its proponents argue it could be. Everyone I spoke to agrees the status quo is not ideal. It's less clear, though, what we do about it. Hi, George, this is Tom. Um, is, you're 51, aren't you? Excellent, and I can just park in the driveway behind the Volvo and the Mercedes? Excellent. George Wilson, I'm a veterinarian and a zoologist who's had a career in wildlife management and both in the departments of environment and agriculture. I've been a consultant and in the last 10 years I've been an honorary professor at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at the ANU. George Wilson has been working in kangaroo management for nearly 50 years. I started off in uh, 1970 working with New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service as a veterinary officer who was responsible for kangaroo management. And I've had a long-standing interest in aviation and I'm still flying. I therefore went into the National Parks and Wildlife Service and I was able to hire aircraft to fly around. George was involved in the Wales. early kangaroo counts. He says they literally just flew over the landscape and counted the roos they saw. Things have gotten a bit more precise over the years. But one thing is clear. These data go back to the 70s and it's those sorts of results that have tracked this constant increase in kangaroo populations, firstly in New South Wales and then across the whole of Australia since that day. George says there are more kangaroos in Australia now than there were when he started. Millions more. And that's because of us, he says. The changes that were made to landscapes to benefit sheep and cattle, particularly sheep, have led to an increase in kangaroo numbers. It's also been quite devastating for small animals, for small mammals, smaller wallabies and kangaroos for that matter. Firstly, we've uh, removed wild dogs and predators, we've increased the grasses, and we've increased the amount of water that's out there. Consequently, we end up in a situation which, before the last drought, the biomass of kangaroos on the western rangelands equals the biomass of both sheep and cattle. A graph of kangaroo numbers in Australia peaks and troughs with drought, wild fluctuations of millions of roos. There are thought to be around 30 million roos out there right now. That's of the four main commercial species. In 2007, at the height of the millennium drought, that number was 20 million. The population peaked in the early 2000s, then tens of millions died off in the following years. Australia should not be a party to these wild fluctuations in the national emblem, let's face it. Um, millions of kangaroos have died in the drought. They've caused immense damage to the landscape. They've interfered severely with the capacity of landholders because the grazers are able to manage the livestock. Um, they can see a drought coming, take steps, move them off. But the kangaroo population is there at this high level that's the result of the preceding wet years. And surprise, surprise, they start dying. This is what leads to people describing kangaroos as a pest. 
Farmers, particularly during times of drought, see roos compete with their own livestock for feed or eat crops destined for market. George doesn't think kangaroos are a pest, though, but he says something needs to change. You know, I could equally argue there's a plague of sheep and cattle. So you've then got to figure out what it is you're trying to achieve. Are you trying to get rid of the kangaroos to make room for more sheep and cattle? Or do you subscribe to the thesis that I believe quite strongly that we need to have a balance between these two? A case can be made that instead of increasing cattle numbers and sheep numbers after the last drought, instead of breeding their numbers back up, we should be allowing kangaroo numbers to come back up and to make better use of them. The state of kangaroo management is so poor that we can't answer the simple question, do we want more or less kangaroos? George says kangaroos, which produce far less greenhouse gases than other livestock and drink a lot less water, could help Australia reduce its carbon footprint. One of the reasons Australia didn't commit to the Glasgow Methane Reduction Pledge in November was because of the impact on livestock industries. I'm not suggesting that we should abandon the beef industry by any means, but if there is an option to reduce our methane emissions by making greater use of kangaroos, and that's not necessarily even replacing cattle, but if kangaroo numbers are going up again and we're also increasing cattle numbers, why not increase the kangaroo numbers and use them to produce low emission meat. We're doing some work at the moment trying to calculate whether that could lead to a carbon credit that would be tradable. Kangaroo management in Australia is opaque. The commercial industry, which operates everywhere but Tasmania and the ACT, takes a few million roos each year, usually only a fraction of the allowable quota, which is based on annual population estimates. Millions more are culled on private land. We don't really know how many. The very poor figures that are available suggest that the number of kangaroos that are taken outside the commercial industry is equal to the number that are taken within it. But because these animals are not being brought back to a point at which they can be counted or processed, we don't really know that. We know that the permits are issued for those people that apply for permits, and that itself is a small proportion of the number of animals that are actually taken. So there are a lot of animals taken out there. Maybe half of them are wasted, half of them are used. We need to look out long term. Is it a viable industry in the long term? We'd hope it is from our point. If commercial shooting stops, that'll mean that farmers will take their own action and just shoot them. They're on the crops and they have to shoot them to get them off the crops. Well, they're not really leaving bodies in the crops, so they'll gut shoot them and then they've got to go in the bloody into the bush. That's what is our commercial industry is concerned about. There's a genuine concern that the... I mean, I'm a farmer. We have... We, we, <laughs> we'd like to see a few roos, but you don't want to see... a two or three hundred on your crop that overnight disappears. That's a man we're going to call Jack. He runs one of the largest commercial kangaroo processors in the country, buying roo carcasses from shooters like Lindsay and preparing them for us and our pets to eat. Jack obviously has a commercial interest in seeing the industry prosper, but he's convinced that there has to be kangaroo management and that his industry should be shouldering the burden not farmers. We see the commercial industry as both being a really humane method of control, 
we are concerned when we see open slather allowed on culling. That reflects on the total industry in terms of those stories getting out. I mean, there's some horrific stories, especially in association with exclusion fencing. Kangaroos have been you know, perishing on the fence because they can't get to water or can't move to where storms are. They've been rounded up and pushed against a fence and just shot it. It's those big numbers of, of, that are in plague proportions that concern farmers. From a commercial tutor's point of view, he would say that kangaroo harvesting and on a commercial basis, if it gets roped into this culling process that farmers can, at the moment, legally, they don't need a, a marksmanship degree, they, don't, they can shoot wherever they like. There's no accounting for the numbers they shoot. Lindsay agrees that this stuff should be left to the professionals, like him. It's not even just farmers, but it, you've got to remember that there's just hobby shooters that are allowed onto people's properties because they've got, you know, kangaroos and they're like, yeah, you can come on and shoot, you know. And they're, they're out there yahooing and doing whatever. And I have been on properties on the same night as a shooter that I didn't know was going to be there. And I've actually had to put down an animal that I came across that had been shot in the middle of the back and was paralysed, but it would have lain there for days. So there is like a lot of non-care from people as well. But I suppose you get that in any industry, don't you? You know, you, you get the people that are doing it wrong. I just, it is difficult to get lumped in on those sorts of things when we have to do the right thing. He'd like to see a uniform code of conduct covering all shooters. So the standards need to be across the board, basically. If the harvesting can't be done by a commercial shooter, then everyone has to be held accountable to the same standards because they're the standards that are deemed necessary for the animal welfare. And so that, that's how it has to happen. Professional shooters are held to strict standards. Lindsay says it took him about six months to even get accredited. It's a process which includes multiple courses and costs thousands of dollars. The kangaroo accreditation was about four or $500 for that harvester's course. The TAFE course was free at the time that I did it. They had a special push on, on those sorts of rural courses. Lindsay starts listing the bits and pieces you need to get accredited. A harvesting course, a weapon, a scope for the rifle, food safe accreditation. He's got his Land Cruiser with special suspension and a food safe rack on it. It adds up. And, and things that you wouldn't think of, obviously when you're carrying a lot of weight on a vehicle, the suspension for that vehicle has to be suited to the job. So generally, like I had to get upgraded suspension, which was another few thousand dollars, you know, on the vehicle that I had. So, yeah, I, look, I think that as I said, at a minimum it would have been 5000 but it was probably more like six or 7000 if I took into account the guns and the vehicle expenses, yeah. Lindsay's work is clinical. Each roux must be killed cleanly with a single shot to the head. He can't sell it otherwise. One concern of animal rights activists is that there's no monitoring of this. There's nothing stopping Lindsay missing, wounding an animal, and simply not reporting it. For his part, the only ruse Lindsay took when I was with him were killed cleanly. He doesn't reckon he misses much, and to keep his licence he has to pass a marksmanship test every five years. After he takes down a roo, Lindsay and I hop out of the car and pick our way through the rocky ground. He's much more agile in the dark paddock than I am. He hooks the roux onto the side of his specially modified Land Cruiser and dresses it in the field. 
That involves tagging it with where it was shot and getting rid of the head and the guts. If it's a female, he'll check the pouch for a joey and quickly cut off its head, killing it instantly. He then hooks the roo carcass in the back of the ute and we keep moving. So my main aim for a good evening would be to do that 47 more times. <laughs> the image I had in my mind of a roo shooter was something similar to a cowboy, a rugged bushman patrolling the night. But that was not what I saw. Lindsay is practised and methodical. At the chilled shipping container where he stores the roos, he spends more time doing the paperwork than he did gutting and dressing each one. For Lindsay, this is a job, one which is tightly regulated, and he's good at it. People need to be properly informed about what they're discussing before they jump up and down and scream and, and you know, we're not out here to do a cruel thing. Like, this is my job, it's what I do. It is of no benefit to me to be cruel to an animal. Everything we're doing is to a code of practice that's been written for us by scientists and the government and everything. We're following a code to the letter. That's what we have to do. Uh, we're not the Yahoos running around doing the, the wrong things that you see on some of these videos. It's not the commercial guys that are doing that. Lindsay says he shoots on about 100,000 acres of land. He reaches out to farmers in the area and offers his services. For the farmers I spoke to, kangaroo management is a grisly necessity. They'd much rather people like Lindsay do it. But the kangaroo industry isn't big enough. There aren't enough Lindsays out there. Wildlife management expert George Wilson argues that this is because kangaroos are only worth about $20 or $30 each. And farmers, whose land they live on, don't get a cent of that. The state is telling them to carry these animals on behalf of the rest of the citizenry. They're expected to earn their living out of half of the animals on their property and the other half belong to the state or the crown. So, you know, they say, what? No. We don't want as many as that. We want less. They're a pest. I want to take steps to reduce their numbers. Of course, we haven't said what that number is. The state hasn't answered that question for them. We just haven't got any goals for kangaroo management. So what I'm saying is we've got to change the status of the kangaroos to stop them being regarded as a pest, and that means that they've got to be worth something in the hands of the graziers. And at that point, you'll then be able to answer the question, what's an appropriate mix of herbivores is on my property? The commercial industry is worth about $200 million to the economy. Compare that to the over $17 billion red meat is worth, and it's clear roo meat is a tiny industry in Australia. George thinks we ought to get graziers involved, get them to see roos as an asset and something they can make money off rather than as a pest. I'd like to see them be worth a lot more money. I'd like to see kangaroos regarded as another red meat industry. I'd like to see them the responsibility of the uh, Meat and Livestock Australia. Meat and Livestock Australia have expanded their interests to include goats uh, recently, which were a pest, not a pest anymore. They're an asset. And that's why, because the markets have been developed for them, processing has been improved, and they're worth dollars in the hands of the graziers. So the graziers want them. If Australia wants more kangaroos widely distributed in 50 years' time, then they cannot continue to be regarded as a pest by graziers. It's crazy. Look, I've been cooking with kangaroo oh God, all my life. Introduced to kangaroo as a young kid by my uncles 
and aunts um, up on the north coast and we used to have a lot of tail so it was the nice eastern grey really really tasty um, that was way before it was deregulized in 1993 so we were eating this in yeah 70s through the 80s it's been around a long time it just hasn't been utilized by um, non-indigenous australians so why aren't we eating kangaroos it's a question that has long frustrated chef mark olive uh, mark olive known as the black olive from Wollongong, Australia, and a bundjalung man. Mark thinks part of the problem is that we don't know how to cook it. He spent his career, 40-plus years, trying to teach people. It's interesting that, you know, we won't engage with our Indigenous foods here. And it's funny, you know, when I do teach, I ask people, even, you know, people in the street, have you tried this? Have you tried that? They may have have heard of a lemon myrtle or they may have heard of a kwandong fruit. Uh, They've never tried one. And you'd be surprised how many people out there haven't tried our Indigenous flavours. Yet, we'll get on the internet, you'd get a cookbook, you'd actually study a recipe, you'd look at it, understand what you had to incorporate that into an Indian curry, or maybe, you know, you actually went and did the research. It's a no-brainer. It's the same. I mean, you go and do your research about this food and understand it or go and learn about it. But another issue, as Mark sees it, is that we seem to be queasy about eating kangaroos. Skippy. I mean, he's got a lot to answer for. But, I mean, yes, he was cute. But look, so are lambs. And we eat lambs and we don't bat an eyelid. Yet there is this stigma about our emu and our kangaroo. And I find it pretty sad, actually, because overseas are the ones that are hoovering up our resources here. This is our indigenous proteins, especially Europe. They love it over there. Germany, you can find it everywhere. They love the emu, they love the kangaroo, they love the crocodile. Yet we can't even push a third of that or kangaroo um, here in our own country. So why aren't we utilising it? I don't know. I love cooking with it. It's one of the easiest meats to cook once you know. It's pretty spectacular. There are also a lot of concerns about um, animal welfare, particularly around joeys. Are you sensitive to those concerns as well? Well, yeah, and I'm sensitive about lambs and I'm sensitive about veal. Um, You know, it's just, it frustrates me sometimes. In the day, it was used as a protein in a, in a staple diet with minimal else in this country in the day. And yet we come to our current day where food is plentiful and is everything and everything around us is here, yet we're still harping in about our native animals. Yes, they are unique. They are special to this country, but they are a food source as well in that food chain. Being a chef, I don't get queasy with that sort of stuff because it's my job. It's also an industry he reckons could provide opportunities for First Nations Australians in the bush. Um, The thing is, we've got a unique product here, we've got a unique culture here, and we've got a unique culture that's connected to the actual animal. Why aren't we engaging our Indigenous people to work with non-Indigenous people to set up these, you know, so-called farms and everything else. It's not hard. It's not, you know, rocket science. It's actually engaging with people from the land, with elders, with people that are in that industry, with people that, you know, and working together as a team so it is a sustainable meat. 
A New South Wales upper house inquiry into the treatment of kangaroos in the state recently handed down its findings. They were not positive. It found that there was no transparency around how roos are counted in New South Wales, there is no monitoring of non-commercial culling, and that there is no point-of-kill monitoring of the commercial industry. I'm Kate Fairman. I'm a Greens MP in the New South Wales Upper House. I have the environment and wildlife portfolio. I'm also the chair of the Upper House Committee, which has the portfolios of environment planning and local government, which means that I was the chair of the recent inquiry into kangaroos and other macropods in New South Wales. I meet Kate at her office at New South Wales Parliament on Macquarie Street in Sydney. She tells me there were a lot of people asking her to conduct the inquiry. Before the inquiry, she was of the view that kangaroo was a more sustainable protein than some of the alternatives. Her view has now changed. She says one of the biggest issues was how the government was estimating population numbers. In fact, some of the numbers that we saw from the department just weren't, they just weren't feasible. There were some increases in, for example, eastern grey kangaroos in the Tuberborough region was one, it's a population increase by 400% within a year. I mean, this is just ridiculous. The department was questioned and grilled about those numbers, in fact, and could not defend those numbers. I think some of the evidence brought forward by government witnesses was not to be believed. What you want is government witnesses to reassure you that everything's okay. You want them to bring forward the evidence and say, here you go, that's just unnecessary fear-mongering and here are the facts. This didn't happen in this situation. It left us with more questions. Most members of that inquiry were very much alarmed about what we saw and more importantly, what answers we didn't get. George Wilson, who worked on the early kangaroo population surveys and has spent decades working in the field, says that the numbers we have are robust and indicate trends both up and down. But as technology and techniques have improved over the years, he also says that previous surveys have actually underestimated populations. But Kate says that the situation we have now, where landholders are able to cull kangaroos with little oversight, needs to change. To be honest, it's pretty much the Wild West now. People are able to phone up, they're able to get licences, they're able to have hunters onto their property and from what we're hearing, they are just shooting every kangaroo they see. People are coming across uh, carcasses of kangaroos, people are witnessing cruelty on neighbouring properties being shot at a range of different things. We also heard that there is no compliance from the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service. They are the body that is responsible for compliance when it comes to non-commercial harvesting. They have said that they don't go out and monitor at night, that it's too unsafe. A big issue for Kate is the treatment of joeys. If a joey's mother is killed, that joey is probably going to die. Either a predator will get it or it will starve to death. Professional shooters aren't meant to go for ruse with joeys, and if they get one by accident, the joey is meant to be put down quickly and humanely. A lot of professional shooters often don't go for female kangaroos for that reason. But there's really no oversight in the non-commercial cull. We're talking thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of little baby joeys that are somehow bludgeoned to death or in fact escape and run into the bush to starve. Like, I don't consider myself a hardcore animal rights activist. I don't consider myself that, but I really love animals and I don't want to see them treated cruelly and I love Australian wildlife. 
Like, I don't think most Australians would be happy with the fact this is happening and we certainly can't expect the rest of the world to be happy that we are allowing this to happen on our soils. Jack, who runs the kangaroo processor, stresses that the activities of the non-commercial cull shouldn't reflect poorly on his industry. The commercial industry has very specific numbers that they're allowed to harvest via tags. We can't accept any animal into our box that doesn't have a tag on it. So that's recorded. Everyone knows what numbers are being culled and that they're being culled effectively and humanely. That's the, you know, you know, if an animal standing on its own in the bush gets shot in the head, that has to be the most humane <laughs> killing method of anywhere I know, whether it's abattoirs, whatever it is. We accept that people, you know, people that don't eat meat and love animals, yeah, it's, it's but they can't just say, oh, your figures are wrong. There's not, there's a lot less kangaroos there than, and they're all going to get, they're going to get exterminated. That's simply wrong. They can't, I can't accept that. Proponents of the industry argue that a roo being shot in a paddock, with no warning, is more humane than sheep or cattle being herded into chaotic, tightly packed yards with dogs barking and people shouting. Jack says that the solution to Kate's concerns about animal welfare is a more expansive roo industry. A lot of farmers would prefer to have a commercial harvester come and do it and not have to worry and have the animals controlled. They would much prefer that. But if that doesn't happen, then they, they're obliged, they have to do something about them. Some don't. And we're, look, we're all different. People have different attitudes to animal welfare. Some farmers are really cognizant of, of animal welfare and are committed to it. Others are a lot more casual. So they're not going to worry whether they have to shoot them themselves or bring some mates in to plug them. The New South Wales inquiry found that there is no monitoring of the commercial industry at the point of kill. That means there's no government inspector who goes out with the shooter to make sure he or she is doing the right thing. But Jack said he's seen no evidence of shooters doing the wrong thing. Every animal shot commercially is accounted for. Obviously, if they're left in the paddock, they're not accounted for. What percentage that is, I don't, I, it would have to be below half percent. I mean, it, it may happen. But we don't, you're right, we don't hear of it, but there's certainly, if you were to ask our shooters, <laughs> they would truthfully tell, they'd tell me, and no one said, oh, I shot a couple last night, I'd leave them because they, you know, they were gut shot or something. That, that's not, it's never an issue. We've never looked on that as a, as a realistic issue, I guess. The commercial reality is shooters can't afford to be, A, they can't deliver animals that are incorrectly shot, and B, they're not going to waste bullets. To, you know, th- these bikes are, true marksmen, they'll take 20 cartridges out and shoot 20 kangaroos in the head. They're professionals. It's a different game to the culling, if you like. Completely different. There's a big divide in Australia over this issue. It seems proponents and critics of the industry are reading from completely separate sets of facts. I wonder if the sound and the fury affect Lindsay, out in the paddock on his own in the middle of the night. There's international pressure on the industry too, particularly from the United States where there's a push to ban the import of kangaroo products, citing animal cruelty reasons. Big names like Nike and Adidas are being lobbied to stop using kangaroo leather in their products. This would be devastating for the industry and shooters like Lindsay. That does stress me out. I mean, I've got huge amounts of of money invested in it. And not only that, you know, like we've ceased all other forms of, of work. So it is concerning that some of these lobbyist-type groups can get together and just seem to make enough racket to get things banned without the facts behind it. If you're not doing this correctly, you can't make any money. There's literally no way you can. You don't ever see anything much around how it's all done and how all you see is the 
the joey stuff and the cruelty and the cute little kangaroos, don't you? You never really see anything else. Despite the stress and the controversy of the industry, Lindsay is happy with his decision to become a roo shooter. It's a good job and he's glad to have it. I think it takes the right mind frame to do it. You know, like if you've got a bit of self-motivation really. <laughs> but it's no different to a, a shearing type job or whatever where you get paid for how hard you want to work. You know, like if you're willing to put in the hours and put in the hard work, then you'll, you'll make a good wage out of it. So to be honest, there is not many jobs in rural Australia where someone could come out of school at 18, you know, get a little bit of money together, go and do the courses, get a bit of training, get some country, and then go out and work hard and start making $100,000 a year on a natural resource. That's it for this episode of Voice of Real Australia. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This is our last podcast for 2021, so I'll see you next year. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. If you'd like to share your story, email voice at ostcommunitymedia.com.au. That's voice at ost, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash voiceofrealaustralia. You can follow me on Twitter at tommelville124. Voice of Real Australia is recorded in Canberra on Ngunnawal country. It's produced by Lara Corrigan and me, your host, Tom Melville. Special thanks this week go to you, our listeners. Thanks so much for sticking with us through 2021. Happy holidays, and we'll see you next year. Our editors are Emily Sweet and Chad Watson. This is an ACM podcast. Mm-hmm.